Amen. Think about that, that you were just singing. We'll get a, we'll get a hold of that. We'll get ahead, get ahead of it. There it is. Nope. Okay. Maybe. See, this is what happens when Jonathan, who has this booming bass voice, preaches in my absence. Then you come back to this raspy, you know, baritone, boy-child voice, and it just can't, can't compete. But, uh, Jonathan, good job last week, buddy. Thank you very much for uh, stepping in for me, and, and uh, I love, I'm captivated by DNA now as well. So that was, that was great, talking about the identity we have in Christ and, and uh, knowing that we've been found in him. And what I was saying was just then you were singing holy, 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 and you were joined with a whole host of angels in proclaiming the King of kings and the Lord of lords who sits on a throne today who declares our freedom from sin. That is a good thing to think about right there as we jump into Romans chapter 6 this morning. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Romans chapter 6, Paul, we've been pleading the case of justification the entire time that we are justified, not by our works, but we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's not anything that we've done to earn this total justification that you've been declared just. There's no condemnation for you any longer, those who are in Christ Jesus. So now as we shift to chapter 6, there's this... So how does it play out in the life of a believer? What does the sanctification look like and the application look like as a believer? R.C. Sproul says, Paul's great concern is that those who have been justified have been justified unto holiness. We have not been justified by our holiness or through our holiness, but unto it so that we might grow in conformity to the image of Christ. Now that we've been justified, we get to see that God is going to work in us and through us to conform us into the very image of his son. That we now have not been left alone, but we have been given a spirit, a down payment that will work in us as we go through the process called sanctification. So Romans chapter 6, this is what this entire chapter is about. So if you have your Bibles, join with me in reading. I'm going to read the entire chapter and we're going to work our way through it today. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? 
Are we to sin because we are no longer, we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and it's in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the liberation that we have, that we have been set free from the body of death, that we have been united with you in Christ and that you now live in and through us. Father, I pray today as we go through your word that you give us instruction, you would shed light on areas that we see that are hard to understand, and Lord, that you would reveal yourself in us and through us as you produce a fruit in us that is incapable of being produced apart from you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we look at this, we're looking at really our justification, our salvation, and the mysterious marriage of justification and sanctification. There's a mysterious marriage of the two. Now, one of the best parts about being a a minister of the gospel is getting to perform marriages because it's a good celebratory time, right? And you get to be down front with the couple, and you may not know this, but that couple, they're just staring at each other intently. They're looking into each other's eyes. They're whispering little things back and forth that no one else can hear, and you're like, pay attention. we got to get through this, right? And so they're up there. They're just loving this moment where they're about to have the declaration made that they are now one. That it is about to happen, that I'm I'm about to say, by the power vested in me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by the state of Tennessee, I present you husband and wife, right? That that moment is about to happen. And then I go off and I sign their little certificate that says, marriage certificate, I was there, I officiated, this is it, this is it, it's written, it's there, it's done. But do they understand what it means to be married? No. And if you've been married for any time, you walk off that stage, you're like, this is great. And then you have to argue about which way the toilet paper roll goes, right? Do you go beard or mullet? I'm going to go beard every time, right? It's got to be over. And so you start arguing about things like that. And what you're doing is you're learning how the relationship is to be worked out that you're no longer single anymore, but now you're married and you're working these things through what it means to be in a covenant relationship. Now, if you're not married and I'm, and I'm giving you this, I'm going I'm to give you some practical advice. And this is the advice that I give whenever I go through marriage counseling with a couple. And this is, this is actually a verse that my wife, when I asked her to date me in high school, quoted to me when she said no. So <laughs> this, this is the verse, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Talk about 
Talk about just rejection right there, okay? That was some straight-up rejection, but it got me thinking. And that, that part of me, my life that was not living for Christ was then come, coming face-to-face with a, you know what, my life shows no transformation of what I claim. And so if you are in a relationship, that person might be the most gorgeous person that you've ever laid eyes on, right? They might, you might think that they never have bad breath, that everything in their life is great, right? You might think all of these things, but if that person is not in Christ, I have news for you, you're not on the same path. Because when you are in Christ, you begin the process of sanctification, where you begin working your way towards God in all the decisions that you make, where he is peeling back layer after layer of layer of the old person, and you're heading towards God. And if the other person in that relationship is not under the process of sanctification, you're going to start to find that there are areas that you pull away in. And over time, it becomes more and more difficult for that marriage to stay secure. Now, unfortunately, the percentages of marriages that fail in the church and in the world are almost identical. And it's because we fail to see the importance of sanctification in the life of a believer. There is a marriage between the justification that you have in Christ and the sanctification that you have in Christ. And those two go hand in hand together. If you're not married, let me give you something to look forward to. And if you are married, let me me give you something to look forward to. That one day you will be the bride of Christ that is presented to the groom. That these, these are pictures, these earthly marriages are just simply pictures of the true and better marriage, which is the bride of Christ and himself. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as pure virgin to Christ. Ephesians 5, 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Are you ready for the day where you stand face to face before the one who is holy, holy, holy. Are you ready for that day where you've been justified and that life of sanctification has led to the moment of glorification where all those things are gone and you now stand there ready before him? What a beautiful picture. So let me ask it to you this way as Paul begins this chapter. Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? I know If you're married, declared one with each other, do you continue to live as if you're single? No. That's ridiculous. Okay? If you're married to Christ, declared one with him, do you continue to live as if you're a sinner? By no means. That is not who you are anymore. And so Paul's making this shift, this argument to, listen, if this is true of you, if you are in Christ, if you're justified, You cannot continue to live the way that you once lived because that's not who you are anymore. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may bound? By no means. This is the strongest language that you can use. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, up to this point, Paul's preaching of salvation, being by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, made many feel that grace was a liberty that they had to break the law and continue in sin. Well, as we read in uh, a few weeks ago in 520, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. So we know what sin is. 
But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So then there was this whole group of people that were like, well, listen, if you're just going to keep getting grace upon grace upon grace, then let's just keep sinning. Let's just keep sinning and keep sinning. And then the more grace and more grace and more grace. And he's saying, no, that's not what I'm talking about. That's antinomianism. And so let me tell you a term called antinomianism, which means lawlessness. It comes from the Greek word lawless. Meaning that if you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then you are freed from keeping the law because it is of no value in your salvation. You see how the twist on the application there is? Like if you didn't do anything to earn to be, earn salvation, then why? Why even try? You're just going to get more grace. That's antinomianism. That's, that's not what Scripture teaches. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that, that you can just go live however you want just because you've received justification. The antinomian view is a doctrine of belief that the gospel frees Christians from required obedience to any law, whether scriptural, civil, or moral, and that salvation is attained solely through faith and the grace, uh, the gift of divine grace. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Alone. But that is not a liberty to live in sin. It's just not. Do you act like you're single after you get married? By no means. After you're united with Christ, do you continue to live as if you're not united with Christ? By no means. As Jesus taught us about the law, he said this in Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes, relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying here? What is, he's saying that I've come to fulfill the law. You cannot live the law. You cannot be perfect. You cannot do those things. And so I've come. I've lived in your place to become the new federal headship as we talked about two weeks ago so that you can be under Christ and what his obedience has accomplished in your place. So why did Jesus have to die on the cross if he was sinless? Because sin matters. It matters. And since sin matters, the law matters. Listen, the sins that you commit even after being saved and justified matter. It, it matters. So we cannot continue in sin as if it doesn't matter. If we say God's laws are meaningless then sin isn't sin. And if sin isn't sin, then people can do whatever they want, even if it contradicts God's love and goodness because God is a God of grace. What we have is we have a whole shift of people who are elevating the grace of God and diminishing the goodness of God and the holiness of God. And they're claiming that they can live however they want because of God's grace, but yet they're not following underneath his goodness and his holiness and if that's the case, that would mean that greed, adultery, lies, hatred, immorality, stealing, idolatry, and even murder become an acceptable part of the Christian life. Listen, there are, there are believers who claim union with Christ, who believe that all of these things are okay if you can justify them. By no means. By no means. Sin matters. Our independence is that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you have been justified. That's the independence. You have been saved from the penalty of your sin. 
you are no longer under condemnation. You've been declared just. You have been set free from the power of sin. That's the part of sanctification we have a real hard time with. It no longer has dominion over you. And now you are free to put away sin and pursue righteousness. That's what freedom is. Therefore, as Paul would say to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, 21 through 22, Therefore, if anyone cleanses from himself, from the dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We are to put away sin and pursue righteousness. Wayne Barber said it this way. Freedom is not the license to do what you want to do, to do what you please. It's the power to do as you should. It is a totally different thought. The antinomians would take what Paul said and try to pervert it. You see, a lot of people still think, I made a decision years ago. I walked an aisle. I cried big tears and asked God to forgive me. I'm a Christian now, and I can live like I want to because of God's grace. He saved me, and he forgave me. Hold it. Hold it. What you were saved from and what you were saved to. What were you saved from and what were you saved to? You must understand what Paul is saying here. There is no possible way a Christian can go back and live the lifestyle he lived when he was in Adam because he's not in Adam anymore. He is now in Christ. Sanctification. First thing I want you to see is the application of justification, which is sanctification, declares that we died to sin. It declares that we died to sin. If, if you've died to sin, you are in Christ, and sin no longer has dominion or ruling power over you. You have now entered into the process of salvation, which is in three parts. Justification, which he's talked about for the last five chapters. Salvation from the penalty of sin. No longer are you held condemned. Now you have sanctification, our salvation from the power of sin. It no longer has dominion or power over you. And one day you will reach glorification, which is our salvation from the presence of sin. One day we'll reach a point where he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, no more sin. One day we will be freed not only from the penalty and the power of sin, but we will be freed from the presence of sin. And until that moment, we live in the power of Jesus Christ and his resurrection power that lives in and through us. Sanctification is what Paul is focusing in on here, and it's, it's a beautiful but messy part of the Christian life. It's beautiful. It's beautiful because after justification, you begin to see people's lives change. You begin to see them fall more and more and more in love with Jesus Christ. You begin to see the things that used to enslave them fall away from them. You begin to see them walk in a newness of life. You begin to see this radical change. But here's the, here's the frustrating part. Having to work through those sins. And watching people have to work through those sins. And then looking at people and thinking, man, they should be further along than they are. But knowing that they are working through the sins that are in their life through the sanctification of Jesus Christ. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What is this continue in sin? The phrase doesn't just mean a continuance, that you continue in sin. Because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But it's a perseverance in will and want. It's an, active, it's an acting upon that 
which has no remorse or conviction. It means that if you are dead to sin, you cannot continue in sin without there being a remorse and a conviction that the Holy Spirit brings into your life. It doesn't mean that you won't sin. It doesn't mean that you won't struggle with sin. It doesn't mean that, that those things automatically are disappeared from your life. No, it just means that now when sin enters your life, that's the old you. That's the dead part of you. And now you're grieved by what has entered into your life. As John would say in 1 John 3, 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you've been reborn, if there's been a regeneration of the heart, then there's something new that has taken place in your life, and no longer can the seed of sin remain in you because you're not under Adam, you're now under Christ. And so when that seed comes in, it doesn't belong there anymore, and there's a rejection from the heart that takes place. If a person says, I've been born again, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, then what Christ has done in their heart will be demonstrated with a general change in the direction of their life. For a life that lives in sin, from a life that lives in sin to a life that seeks to live for and to please God. There's been a dramatic change. So, should we go on sinning so the grace may abound? By no means, verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So what does it mean to have died to sin? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you no longer want to sin. It doesn't mean that, because I would say that every single Christian in here has a battle with wanting to sin occasionally. Am I right? So it doesn't mean that you're dead, you're dead to it that way. It doesn't mean that you simply ought not to sin anymore because that's inappropriate behavior for a believer, right? You shouldn't do that. That's inappropriate. That's not what that means. No, it doesn't mean that you're slowly moving away from sin and its power over you. You've been freed from it, but you and I still know that there is this, this temptation and this torment that just never goes away no matter how long you've been saved. Am I right? It, it seems like once you've conquered one area of sin in your life, boom, there's another one. And then there's another one. And then there's another one. So it doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean that you have renounced sin. It's to say, sin, you're dead to me. I'm not talking to you anymore. I'm, I'm going to unfriend you on Facebook. I don't want to see your stuff anymore. That's not what that means. Because you can't get away from it. You've not been taken out of the world. So you can't defriend it automatically. What does it mean? It means that you are no longer guilty of sin and no longer under the condemnation of sin, and so we are no longer under the reign and the ruling power of sin. It means you can say no to sin that you couldn't do beforehand. Isn't that, that's great news. That's liberation. That's freedom right there, that you now have the opportunity to say, no, that's not who I am anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ, and I will not fall for this again. Justification is not a license to sin, but a liberation from sin. Ephesians, Paul would say it this way in 4, 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify to the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You can substitute sinners there, as sinners do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what sanctification looks like, that you now 
are dead to sin, meaning that it no longer has power and dominion over you, so you can put off the old self that you were incapable of doing before Christ, and now you can put on the new self, and you can walk in newness of life. This is great stuff. This is God's word. So before Christ, you were dominated by sin, dominated by a debased mind. You were ruled by your flesh and your selfishness for all sorts of evil and deeds and practices. But now you're under a new headship, a new federal headship, Jesus Christ. For the believer, you are dead to sin and its power over you. That does not mean that you will not be tempted. It does not mean that sin will not trick you. It does not mean that you will not be tormented with desires. It means simply that you are in Christ, and you cannot, you will not, and you do not want to go back to where you were. Thomas Schreiner says this, justification cannot be separated from, the san from sanctification. Only those who have died with Christ are righteous and thereby enabled to conquer the mastery of sin. You cannot separate the marriage of justification and sanctification. As Charles Spurgeon said, an unchanged life is the mark of an unchanged heart. And an unchanged heart is a sign of an unregenerate life. The whole spirit of the gospel is opposed to the idea of sinning because God is gracious. It is a horrible satanic suggestion. As pardon can be so easily obtained from God, let us sin the more against him. The bare suggestion is utterly degrading and diabolical. Ray Steadman said it this way, if someone asks, what if a Christian does go on sinning, living in sin, claiming forgiveness, but goes on without any change in his life, whatever? What about that? There are people who are doing that. The answer in light of this scripture is very simple. These people simply are revealing that they never truly have been justified by faith. They are not Christians. Let's put it as bluntly as the apostle himself put it. They are deceiving themselves and deceiving others, though they may do so with good intent and with utter sincerity as far as they know. Nevertheless, the case is clear. It is impossible for your lifestyle to continue unchanged when you become a Christian. It is simply impossible because a change has occurred deep in the human spirit. And those who protest and say they can go on living this way are simply revealing that there has been no change in their spirit. There has been no break with Adam. So let me ask you, has there been a change in your life that proves you have a changed heart? Has there been a change from that moment when Christ called you, when you repented, when you shed tears, maybe when you raised a hand, when you walked an aisle, when you prayed with a pastor, when, when, you, when you did whatever it was. Maybe it was, maybe it was away from church. Maybe you just found yourself at that moment where you fell on your knees before him, repenting of sin and asking for him to be your savior and forgive you of all your sins. I want you to be Lord of my life. Have you seen a distinct change in your heart from that moment? Because a Christian's conduct must be consistent with a Christian conversion. Same thing we see is the application of justification declares that we have been united with Christ. We've been united with Christ. We're dead to sin, and now we're united with Christ. So over these next few verses, verses 3 through 10, you're going to see the word baptism repeated over and over and over. And though Paul's not writing about the ordinance of baptism here, it is important to mention it. 
It's important to mention that there is a physical baptism that we go through as a picture of what Paul's about to talk about here in chapter 6. When we come to sections of scriptures that talk about our immersion into Christ, we should have the visual picture of baptism where we were fully immersed in the waters and we were risen to newness of life. Buried with him in baptism, risen to walk in newness of life. Kevin Van Hoosen said this, Baptism marks a disciple setting out on Jesus' way by ritually enacting the death of the old self and the birth of the new. Let me ask you, have you followed the Lord in believer's baptism? If you've claimed Christ as your federal headship, if you've claimed him as Lord of your life, let me ask you, have you physically gone through the motions of declaring it to a congregation, to brothers and sisters in Christ, that I am no longer who I was, I am dead, and I am risen to newness of life? That's the first act of obedience for a believer that you are saying, look, listen, from this point on, I want everyone to know that I am in Christ Jesus. And if you have received Christ, but you have not followed through with baptism, this is my plea to you that you should show everyone the change that has taken place within you. And so I know that there are students that haven't followed through with this. I know there are children in our church who haven't followed through with this. And I know some of them are asking questions and I want you to know as a church, we want to be able to answer those questions, so we provide a baptism class that will come up soon after Vacation Bible School for anyone who wants to go through that. And if you're an adult and you're like, I'd like to have a class, come find me and I will give you a class on what baptism is. And we will walk through that together because we need to demonstrate the immersion and the unification we have with Christ. That our old self is dead and that we are risen to newness of life. And because of that newness, we want to show everyone that we are baptized. So, verse... Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You were immersed in Christ so that you might walk in newness of life. Not just so you would be justified, but that your life would be changed. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's future glory. We're looking forward to the resurrection of the saints. We know this word know comes up three times, verse 3, 6, and 9. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I was crucified with him. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. You look at those who have gone on before us, who have passed away. You look at the grave. You know what? They're free from, from sin, right? They're no longer sinning. They're no longer sinning. They're freed from sin because they are dead. So spiritually speaking, we are also free from sin because we have died with Christ. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Tim Keller puts it this way, while sin remains in me with a lot of strength, it no longer controls my personality and life. It is still able to lead me to disobey God, but now sinful behavior goes against my deepest self-understanding. When a non-Christian sins, they're acting in accord with their identity, with who they are. Why wouldn't they sin? But when someone is united to Christ, everything changes because who they are changes. There's a new me. When a Christian sins, they're acting against their, very, their identity. Why would they sin? Therefore, if I sin... It is because I do, I do not realize who I am 
I have forgotten what has been done for me in Christ. When we go on sinning so that grace may abound, we have forgotten who we are in Christ. We have forgotten that we have not only died to our old way, but we have been risen to newness of life. So I always say it this way, don't be surprised when sinners act like sinners. Because they're sinners. It shouldn't surprise us. When you, when you turn on the TV or when you get out your device and you start scrolling through all of the social media stuff and you start seeing all of these things taking place, sinners act like sinners. It's who they are. So it should surprise you when Christians go on acting like sinners. Because that's not who they are. That's not who he's called you to be. Sin should not characterize the Christian, but a life of freedom from sin and a freedom for righteousness should characterize the Christian. We know, verse 9, that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Christ Jesus lives a resurrected life for God. And he is molding us and shaping us and changing us through sanctification so that we too will live a life for God. Newness of life. We no longer live the old way. Christ did not die that we could keep on sinning. He just didn't. He didn't die and show us grace so that we could just call it cheap and spit on it and keep continuing in the path that we were going down before. We have been changed. We've been buried with him in baptism, risen to newness of life. Turn with me to Philippians 3, 12 through 21. Just a few over. If you find uh, Galatians, you'll find it soon after that. Galatians, Philippians, Colossians. General Electric Power Company. That's what you remember. Galatians, Electric, Ephesians, Power, Philippians, Company, Colossians. See? Didn't learn that in seminary. All right. Verse 12. This is Paul talking about the sanctification. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal, it, will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I've not, I've not attained it. You're not going to reach perfection in this life. Sanctification is going to prepare you for the day of glorification. And that's what Paul's saying, listen, there are some and there are many who I've warned you about who are living contrary to the cross. They're living in sin and their appetites and their belly is going to be their shame. Although they know about Christ, they should no longer be walking this way, but they should be striving upward towards Christ in newness of life. 
Third one, final point. The application of justification declares that we must consider ourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you're dead, you're united, and you're alive. You're dead, buried with him in baptism, right? You're united with him, you're fully immersed with Christ in his life now, and so you're going to live in God, in Christ. Salvation is God's sovereign application of our salvation. Sanctification is God's sovereign application of our salvation. By the uniting of himself to us through his perfect son, Jesus Christ, and by the assistance of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that works within us, sanctification takes place in congruence with our responsibility of actions. That's difficult for us to understand. That we have a responsibility of actions. Christ is working in us, but you can't just sit around and do nothing in hopes that sanctification is going to fall out of the sky and hit you on the head. It just doesn't work that way. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is working in you, both to will, I want to follow the Lord, and to work it out. Good works that were prepared for you beforehand. You've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. For works that were prepared beforehand. So Paul's going to give you five actions of responsibility in the process of sanctification. I want to give you these responsibilities, and I'll work through them pretty quickly. Number one, reckon. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Knowing who you are makes all the difference in the world. If you still buy into the lies that Satan wants to feed you, that you are an awful sinner, that you'll never amount to anything, then you will stay in that position and you'll think those things about you. But if you will listen to what the scripture says about who you are in Christ, it can change everything. By the renewing of your mind, so you must consider, you must reckon, you must count on it, who you are now. John MacArthur says, if a believer is to fully live out his new life in Christ, he must begin by knowing he is not what he used to be. Believer, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You are not who you used to be. Again, this is why baptism is so important as an act of obedience, because it is a physical reminder that you are dead to your old self and you're risen to newness of life. Number two, you are to resist. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. We aren't immune to the temptations and the lures of our sinful past, so we must resist them. We can't let sin reign or remain unchecked in our hearts and lives. It must be resisted and dealt with quickly. It, I know because I am no different than anyone else in this room, that there are times when we allow things to go unchecked for periods of time until we just can't allow it anymore. Let me tell you, if you're in here today and there's sin in your life that you've allowed to go unchecked, it is not a pet, and it will destroy you. Went to the alligator farm this last week. They're so cute when they're little, right? My daughter was like, I want to bring home an alligator. And I was like, no. No, you can hold one, but that's it, you know? But you bring that thing home, and you're like, look, it's my pet. One day it's going to grow up, and it's going to eat you, right? Sin cannot go unchecked. We must resist it. Number three, remain. Do not present your, your members to sin, verse 13, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin 
will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Remain. Remain in him. As he said in John 15, 1 through 8, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. If you want to see sanctification take place in your life, remain in him. Resist sin. Reckon that you are dead to sin, but remain in him. As the song says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We've all had those feelings. Scripture urges you to remain, not to wonder. Number four, relinquish. I'm speaking in human terms, verse 19, because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. As you relinquish control of your life, as you remain in him and then you relinquish, God, you're in control. You are Lord and you are Savior. You are in complete control. I'm relinquishing my authority and I'm submitting to your authority. Then you will, number five, reproduce. He will produce in you a fruit that you are incapable of producing on your own. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a remarkable thought that if we will reckon, if we will resist, if we will remain, and we will relinquish, we will have a heart prepared for him to reproduce in us the character of Christ. As I close, as the band comes up, I'm going to read Galatians 5, 13 through 25. My brothers and sisters, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual morality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step 
of the Spirit. Gracious Father, we come to you right now. We bow our heads before you, asking that you, by your Spirit, would convict. Father, right now, if there's any of us in here who have pet sins, who have not seen a distinctive change in our life and our heart, Father, right now, I pray that we would be moved to repentance, that we would move to fall on our knees before you, that we would weep before you because of the things that are in our life that should not be there. Father, we would pursue you, that we would remain, that we would relinquish, that we would reckon ourselves dead, knowing that what you have accomplished, we have been united with. Father, I pray that if there's someone here who needs to follow you in believer's baptism, Lord, that you will lead them to that moment, that decision where they decide to make a public profession of their faith. Father, we love you. We thank you for what you've done in Christ Jesus. Change us from the inside out, molding us and making us more like your son, day in and day out. In Christ's name, amen. Will you stand?